Good morning again, and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad that you're here with us, uh, especially after a week away. Now, two Sundays ago, we started a six-week sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are sticking with that plan. We're not going to skip any weeks because of weather. And each week, we're reading a passage where Jesus says two simple words, follow me, follow me. Easy enough, right? And all along, we'll be asking the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, you especially need to hear this if you're not a follower of Jesus right now, or if you've been flirting with the idea of following Jesus, but have kicked the can down the road. But even if you've been following Jesus for as far back as you can remember, we all need reminders of what it means to follow him. So two weeks ago, we started with Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. And in that passage, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He said those words to two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And these four men obeyed Jesus's command. Again, it wasn't a request. It wasn't an invitation. It was a command. They dropped their nets, left their boats and followed him. Then and there, there was no second guessing, no questions asked, no reservations expressed. They simply followed him immediately. And that call to follow Jesus and be fishers of men still exists for believers today. We in this room are commissioned to go out and do the exact same thing. We hold the good news of Jesus out in the world like a fisherman holding a net out in the water. And we do this confidently, knowing that to this very day, God is still calling sinners to believe in and follow Jesus. We do it reverently, recognizing what an incredible honor and privilege it is to play a part in this work of God. We do it boldly, even when it makes us uncomfortable. We do it joyfully, remembering God's grace and reaching down and pulling us up out of the depths of sin and death. And we do it faithfully, even when it seems like the fish aren't biting. And all the while, we keep Jesus' words from the Great Commission in mind. We remember that the man who has called us to be fishers of men, to go out and make disciples of all nations, that man is not just another man. He's the Son of God. And he's been given authority on heaven and earth and is with us always, even to the end of the age. But today we turn a few chapters ahead to Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, where once again Jesus says that phrase, follow me. But this time around, Jesus will say those words in a very different tone from Matthew 4. And we'll also see a very different response from those who hear him. And hopefully we'll gain a little bit more understanding of what exactly following Jesus requires. So open up to Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together On the one hand, thank you for a week off. Uh, For some of us, it may have been a little bit of a relief 
uh, to not have services. Um, it may have been nice to sleep in and, and rest and stay home and stay safe. Um, but Father, we're also glad to be back here. Um, that is not something we would want happening on a regular basis because worshiping you is a privilege. Worshiping you is a joy and being part of a church family uh, is a wonderful, wonderful joy. Uh, and I pray that having one week away uh, would maybe remind us uh, of the joy of gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ on a weekly basis. And Father, be with us this morning as we pick back up where we left off in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I pray that you would teach us through your word more about what it means to follow your Son. Uh, I pray that with your word guiding us and with your spirit living inside of us, uh, that we would look more and more like Christ and that we would follow him more and more closely day in and day out. And Father, we pray for this church. Uh, Thank you for the people who are here this morning. We ask that you watch over the people who aren't here. Thank you for new faces uh, that have come around, not just this morning, but over the past few weeks or months. Uh, And Father, we pray for this church family uh, with whatever might be going on in our lives today. Um, The successes and the failures, the joys and the sorrows. uh, Father, watch over this body of believers. And may our worship be honoring to you, and may it be building up for us this morning. We give it all to you, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, like last week, today we find ourselves in the region of Galilee, and specifically the city of Capernaum. Now, by the time you get to Matthew chapter 8 from Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has preached the greatest sermon ever delivered, the Sermon on the Mount. He's healed a leper simply by touching him. He healed a paralyzed little girl simply by speaking and healed numerous other people as well. Along the way, he exercised a few demons and fulfilled one of Isaiah's prophecies from the Old Testament. In other words, it was just another day in the office for Jesus. But then we read about crowds in chapter 8. We read about crowds forming in chapter 4, and it's understandable that after all these things that Jesus has done, people want to see who this guy is. And so that's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So we read that the crowd makes Jesus want to get in a boat and cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, why is it? Is Jesus just getting annoyed with these people? Does he need some time alone with his core disciples? Is he an introvert needing time to recharge? Was it a hot day and people in close quarters and a time when deodorant wasn't invented yet and he just kind of wanted some space? I don't think that's it. It's possible that in a sense, Jesus's work here in Capernaum, at least for now, is done. He's healed. He's preached. 
He's done what God has sent him to do, and it's time for him to go do it somewhere else, namely to a bunch of Gentiles. But before they set sail, and you can picture the disciples packing up the boat, getting their equipment ready, preparing to set off, right before they go, a man comes up to Jesus and says that he wants to go with him. He wants to follow him. Now, there are a few things that make this first man particularly interesting. Number one, this man is a scribe. Most scribes in the Gospel of Matthew are opposed to Jesus, but not this one. He enthusiastically wants to follow him. The second thing that makes this man interesting is that he calls Jesus teacher. Teacher. Now, presumably, he says this out of respect, trying to show Jesus some level of honor. But in Matthew's gospel, every single person, except for one, every single person who addresses Jesus as teacher is an outsider. And the only exception, the one person who isn't an outsider who calls Jesus teacher is Judas. Not exactly good company to keep. And then the third thing that makes this man interesting is that level of excitement. That level of enthusiasm. He emphasizes that he will follow Jesus wherever he goes. North, south, east, west, hot, cold. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you lead me. Let's get going. But then we read Jesus' response. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Kind of a damper, isn't it? This guy is pumped up to follow Jesus, and then Jesus kind of throws a bucket of water on the fire that lives inside this guy. Now, typically, we think this phrase about foxes having holes and birds of the air having nests and Jesus having nowhere to lay his head, we think this refers to Jesus being poor. And that's certainly relevant. It's important to remember that Jesus' life and the life of his first followers, it was not luxurious. Nothing close. And this is a good passage to turn to when some huckster preacher out there tries to justify the Lamborghini he just bought by arguing that Jesus was actually rich. No, he wasn't actually rich at all. But really, more than poverty, this phrase about foxes and birds and holes and nests, Jesus' response here is not so much about poverty, it's more a warning about Rejection. Jesus is saying that following him means that not everyone will accept you. Not everyone will welcome you. In a world where hospitality was one of the highest virtues, many will turn Jesus and his followers away. They'll have no place to lay their heads, nowhere to sleep. And if you read ahead to the end of Matthew chapter 8, that's exactly what happens when they reach the other side of the sea. Jesus performs an incredible miracle, and the people beg him to leave. They don't want him there. He's not welcome there. But then right after this guy makes this request, and Jesus' very dark and somewhat cryptic response, another man comes along, and he also wants to follow Jesus. Now, person number two is described as a disciple, and he calls Jesus Lord. 
He's off to a better start than the first guy. He doesn't call him teacher. He's not like Judas. Maybe this guy really gets it. Maybe he's a little more serious than the first guy. But then the second man only wants to follow Jesus on his own terms. He tries to establish boundaries. Specifically, he needs to bury his father first. Now, at first glance, that's not an unreasonable request, is it? In fact, if nothing else, it's noble that this man wants to honor his father. I'm pretty sure there's something in the Ten Commandments about that, Jesus, isn't there? But the situation is a little more complicated than you might think. In all likelihood, based on burial customs of that day, the man's father probably wasn't dead yet. He was probably nearing the end of his life, probably on his deathbed, but he hadn't actually died. And so if that's the case, if this man is saying, hey, Jesus, my dad's about to die. I don't know when it's going to happen. Can I wait until that happens and then I'll follow you? If that's what's happening here, then this guy doesn't know when it's going to actually occur. As we all know, if someone that we're close to has passed away, a friend or a family member, sometimes you never know. Someone who's given a week to live lives for a month. Someone who's given a year to live passes away in a week. You just don't know. The point is that this man gives Jesus an indefinite, open-ended, vague waiting period. He's basically saying, hey, Jesus, I need to get some other commitments out of the way first. And then when those things all shake out, then I'll follow you. Now, even if that's the case, you can still argue that this man isn't asking too much. You can even point to the Old Testament and say that there is precedent for this guy going home and seeing his family before he leaves. There's a passage in 1 Kings chapter 19 that talks about this, one that is easily overlooked. We read there. So Elijah, the prophet Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And Elisha, two different men, very close names, left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And Elisha returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So when the prophet Elijah told Elisha to follow him, he allowed Elisha to go home, say goodbye to his family, throw a bit of a party, a going-away celebration of sorts, before he had to follow him. Can't Jesus let this man do the same thing? Especially for his dad's funeral, for goodness sake. They can meet up later, right? Well, apparently not. Because Jesus responds to the man and says, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. He had warned the scribe that following him could lead to social rejection and alienation. To the point of not having a bed to sleep on. 
But Jesus warns this man that following him takes priority over everything else you hold dear. Without hesitation and without delay. Jesus demands more of this man than Elijah demanded of Elisha. Jesus makes it clear that following him even takes priority over your own family. So with both of these eager men, the overarching lesson is the same. That before they commit to following Jesus, as excited as they are, as enthusiastic as they might be, they need to know exactly what they're getting themselves into. They need to be aware of the risk involved. They need to recognize the demands that Jesus is placing upon them. They need to consider the potential consequences of this decision before they step into that boat. There's another passage where Jesus talks about this idea. It's Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. We read there. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We'll read about that again in a couple weeks. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So Jesus' responses, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, and let the dead bury their own dead. Those responses sounded harsh at first. But really, he was doing these two men a favor. Because they weren't truly prepared to follow him. They didn't want it as bad as they thought they did. And it's better to know that before you start building the tower than after. It's better to know that before the battle begins than after you've already lost. And from what we read in the passage, there is no indication that these men actually followed Jesus. The indication is that they heard these responses And they turned around and went home. Now, all the same lessons that these men learned apply to current and potential followers of Jesus today. Lesson number one is that following Jesus means accepting the possibility of social rejection. Now, in case you haven't noticed, not every teaching of the Christian faith is very popular today. There are convictions and values Christians hold that fly directly in the face of what our world celebrates. There are actions, traditions, and habits that Christians practice that seem bizarre and sometimes even offensive to many in our culture. 
So are we prepared to be rejected as followers of Jesus? Are we willing to not fit in? Are we at peace with the prospect of being literally or metaphorically homeless in this world because we follow Jesus, having no place to lay our heads? Another lesson is that following Jesus means a willingness to leave some things behind. Now, leaving behind sin? Sure. That's pretty obvious. You leave sin behind. Everybody knows that, right? But Jesus may even call us to leave things behind that appear harmless. He may call us to leave things behind that appear good. But the truth is that anything that we prioritize over Jesus, even if it appears good and noble and virtuous on the outside, is actually an idol. Anything in this world that we allow to take precedence over following Jesus is a false God, and we leave it behind. So perhaps there are things right now that you need to leave behind. Maybe there are priorities, goals, hopes, and dreams that appear to be perfectly acceptable, but on a closer look, they're actually idols. Leave them behind. Let the dead bury their own dead. The third lesson is that we don't set the terms of when or how we will follow Jesus. We don't negotiate with Jesus into letting us follow him after we've had our fun while we're still young, once we've got our lives in order, or maybe when we settle down and have kids someday. Maybe then we'll follow you. We follow him now, no matter where he leads us or how he leads us, or we're not really following him at all. If you're a baseball fan like me, you know that right now is hot stove season and spring training is around the corner and teams like just random example, the Cincinnati Reds are signing free agents and extending contracts and making trades. But one thing you always hear during hot stove season in baseball is that some teams have prospects that are untouchable when it comes to a possible trade. In other words, there are some young players who have such bright futures and so much promise that their teams will never even consider letting them go. Well, when Christ tells us to follow him, we have no untouchables. There is nothing in our lives that we are unwilling to let go of if or when Jesus tells us to. That's because we don't set the terms of when or how we will follow him. He sets the terms. And then lesson number four is that Jesus does not employ the bait and switch technique to gain followers. And we shouldn't do it either. Jesus doesn't invite people to follow him with some promise that following him will instantly make their lives perfect. In fact, he does the exact opposite. He tells us that in some ways, following him might even make our lives worse. He lays the challenge out there with no fine print and tells us to count the cost. So we as fishers of men, we go out and we present Christ to the world in all his fullness, upfront and honest. We tell people what it means to follow Jesus, all its joys and all its sorrows all its privileges and all its sacrifices 
from the very beginning. And if someone hears that and still wants to follow Jesus, then you can be a little more confident that their desire to follow him is an authentic, spirit-driven conversion. Not just some spur-of-the-moment, emotional, knee-jerk reaction. And in light of that, perhaps this is a good time to sit back and reevaluate why we followed Jesus to begin with. If you followed Jesus initially because someone told you that doing so would instantly solve all your problems and would make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous, well, hopefully by now you know better. But hopefully you've also seen the power, you've seen the beauty, and you've seen the glory of Christ enough to realize that even though following him won't be a cakewalk, there is nothing else you want more. Because there is nothing better out there in this life or in the next. A man named Columba, an Irish abbot from the 6th century, once took 12 of his followers to do mission work in Scotland. And legend has it that when they arrived, Columba burned the boat they used to get there. And he did that because he knew that he and his fellow missionaries would be tempted to get in the boat, turn around, and go home if they knew it was still there. And he didn't want them to leave when life got hard. And as followers of Jesus, we too are called to metaphorically burn our boats, to recognize that there is no turning back. Now, of course, before you do this, you count the cost, you recognize the risks, and you accept the consequences. The Gospel of Luke has record of this same encounter that we read about in Matthew chapter 8. But Luke has one difference. In Matthew chapter 8, we read about two men who want to follow Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, there are three men who want to follow Jesus. And this is what the third man says. Luke chapter 9, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The things that we've left behind, the gods we once worshipped, the old dreams, the old goals, the old plans, the old hopes, the old priorities, they must all fall under the umbrella of following Christ. And some of those things simply can't fit. Some things can stay. Some things can be reimagined and repurposed within our new commitment to follow Christ. But other things, the things that simply can't be reconciled with following him, the things that we know we'd be tempted to prioritize over following him, we must bid them farewell. They must be burned. Let the dead bury their own dead and don't look back. It may sound somber, it may sound difficult, and at times it will be costly. There is no sense in denying any of that. But it will be worth it. Because we have a new and better mission. We have a new and better home. We have a new and better Lord, the one who died on a cross for our sins and rose from the grave. So may we follow him wherever he goes. 
May we actually mean it. May we obey him. May we count the cost of following Christ and realize that the prize of being in his presence is far greater than any price we might have to pay. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. It's very easy to read this passage and be challenged by it and yet leave pretty unchanged. Because even though we follow Jesus, our lives often look very, very luxurious. Uh, They often look very, very unchanged. You can make the argument that the lives of most of the Christians in this room don't look that much different from the lives of those people around us who don't follow Jesus. And so it might seem silly for us to talk about radical commitment and leaving everything behind and counting the cost. But Father, I pray that you would help us to do just that. I pray that you would help us to follow Christ. I pray that you would help us to think more deeply about the things that you might be calling us to leave behind, the dead things that need to be buried. And I pray that day in and day out, we would follow you a little bit more closely. Day in and day out, people would take note of our desire to follow you, that it would inspire them to follow you as well. And Father, I pray that when we do follow you, when times do get hard, when following you does actually cost us something, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, that you would keep us within your hand. Father, that you would remind us of who we are, remind us of who you are, and remind us that the prize we have to look forward to is far greater than anything we can count in this life. We love you. We worship you. Father, help us to let the dead bury their own dead. Help us to follow your son no matter where he leads us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.